Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Wars were fought for power, the greed of rare treasures, or to show dominance over different pirate tribes. But the fight today was for something worth more than any gold to Joseph, the freedom of African people. This program features the work of 2020 writer Jeffrey Lee Cheatham II. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator Anastasia René. What connects you most to your genre of writing? Why did you pick children's writing? What keeps you going? (laughs) When I first got into it, it was because I wanted to write stories that represented my daughter. Uh, My daughter got me into it. And the story goes, we went to the Barnes & Noble store in South Center, and she wanted a dinosaur book, and we went to the children's book section. And not only could we not find any dinosaur books, but I didn't see any book covers with her face on it or her skin tone. And so I took it as a, a personal challenge as dad in order to fill up the bookshelves with books that represent my kid. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that this is a concern that many other black and brown parents were experiencing at the time when I got started. Because I got started back in 2012 when um, self-publishing, I would say, was in its infancy. So between the times of 2012, 2014, I was really just researching publishing, self-publishing, the percentages of book covers, how important it is for representation. And the reason why I stuck with children's books is because I wanted to do my part in establishing a healthy self-image for black and brown kids early. And that's what keeps me grounded with uh, the genre. I would imagine, too, I mean, many of us, I'm a parent as well, but, you know, many parents, if they don't see themselves or their children represented in literature, they don't just go write books. Right. (laughs) Tell me about if there's anything that connected you to the genre or your writing practice before the books came out for your children. Well, I've been, been, I'm a big fan of Archie Comics. My dad got me into it. I remember my dad would buy the Archie comics from Safeway on Rainier. And for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we would sit there and read Archie comics as we're eating. And I would just love the stories, like the different types of story arcs within Archie comic books. And then, of course, you got Spider-Man. You got Batman. But what really got me into storytelling was professional wrestling. Really? Really? Professional wrestling. I remember I was about three, four, or five years old, and I was watching a wrestling show and Ric Flair came on and Ric Flair was cutting a promo on somebody. And immediately I was like, Oh, I want to do that. I want to tell stories. So from that point on, when I go to elementary school and I'll have an assignment, I would try to turn my assignment as a form of a comic book as a story. So I've been really into that. I really was in the art, but growing up where I grew up being exposed to what I was exposed to, I didn't really have access to art. I was at high access to sports. So I was uh, going the football player route. But in the back of my mind, I like to draw, doodle, play with toys, express myself. But I wasn't around things that was giving me the ability to express myself that way. 
So when I had my daughter, I made it the point to say, hey, okay, I'm bringing a kid into this world. Let me show her the world I wish I was exposed to where you have possibilities to be yourself. You know, whether she's an artist or whether she was going to be an accountant, let me just show her that there's options for her to be whatever she wants to be. And that's why I got back into storytelling. Because originally I was I was writing movie scripts and I was trying to sell my movie scripts to people. But then when my daughter wanted to get a dinosaur book, that's what got me over to the book publishing side of things. What has been your biggest recent epiphany as it relates to your work? A big aha moment or epiphany? The fact that I'm not alone as far as what I'm trying to achieve with my children's books. Because I've garnered a lot of community support with my books. And the epiphany moment came because I also run an organization called the Seattle Urban Book Expo, which is a, a, a book fair where we provide a platform for black and brown authors in Seattle. So when I do these events and speak to the community about how valuable and how desperate people are to have proper representation in their stories, I thought I was the only one that felt that way, but clearly it's not. It's a global thing to see yourself in stories. And I didn't realize how important that was until the book expos came around and you see so many people in our communities go and buy books, looking for things that represent them or looking for escaping, you know, because one of the big things that really got me into uh, creating my children's book stories was the fact that every time I would read a story that had a black protagonist, I always dealt with New York, Harlem, the country, civil rights or slavery. And my mindset was, we can fight dragons and be wizards and warlocks, too. Just like with my first story, it's a family that deals with a dinosaur family. So it's just like to really do what I can to not make us monolithic, you know, to really expand our realm of possibilities and fantasy. And also seeing that other people in my community felt the exact same way. That's when it felt like, oh, I'm not, it's not just me. I'm actually on a mission to make change in the world. Tell us a little bit more about the Book Expo. So the Seattle Book Expo started in 2016. It was an idea I came up with after I went to a book fair in Toronto, Canada. I just came out with my first book, The Dinosaur Story, The Family Jones and the Eggs of Rex. And I was looking, okay, how do I get my book out to the world? And one of the things I came across was book fairs. And I looked up in Seattle. There weren't that many book fairs I felt comfortable going to. You know, and then I got invited to Toronto by my now friend, Stacy, who runs the Toronto Book Fair out there. And I've never been to Canada, never had a passport. So I went through the process of getting my passport, got the stamps, went to Toronto. And Toronto, I didn't know this, was a it's heavy in, you know, Caribbean Islander music. And there's like so many black people up there. I didn't realize there was a scene. So when I went up there, my mind was blown. Like, I was vibing. You know, I'm learning about Carnival and all the parade and the costumes. I'm like, oh, this is this is dope. This is dope. And literally when I flew back into Seattle, all that festive vibes just washed off me because it was raining. And I was like, that's weak. And then I, had, I was like, man, how can I bring that same energy I had in Toronto to Seattle? 
So I reached back to Stacy and got her blessing to, you know, use her model to bring into Seattle. And she gave me her blessings to do it. And I carried it to Seattle Run Book Expo, which uh, I realized that there were other black authors who are also self-published who did not know how to get their work out there. So the idea for the Seattle Run Book Expo was create a family reunion vibe with books because we have music, food, and community with books. And so the first one, you know, we had it at Black Dot where when it was on 24th and Union. We had eight authors, all of them first time self-published. And we had 250 people in attendance showing up for that one. And since 2016, we've been growing exponentially <laughs> since. And it's all about black and brown literature. You know, black and brown literature, letting the community know who their black and brown authors are in their city so that way they can support them and continue just to build that community amongst ourselves. What are some writing practices or writing rituals you have, if any? You know, we always, are, you know, writers are always bickering about, I don't think you need to have a writing practice. And some are like, yes, I get up every morning and do my pages. What are your writing practices or rituals? So my ritual every morning is I go on YouTube and I look up, free rap beat instrumentals and I find one I like and then I make up a song to the beat and that's like my creative <laughs> practice like you know I'm a rapper every morning you know I have bars for days like I freestyle over beats and that's like my creative flow exercise to get my creative juices flowing and before I start writing I come up with who my main character is going to be and I write a three-page journal through the voice of the character, of the protagonist, and I write a three-page journal entry through the voice of the antagonist. And that helps me understand who my characters are and how to build my story around both the characters. Is there anything you would like to share with us about your writing or your writing practice or your future work as a Jack Straw fellow? My mission with my books is to create happy and healthy discussions amongst families about the topics my books are about. And I want parents to understand the things that you went through as a child is the same things your kid is going through as a child. So we have to be more empathetic towards our children about things that they're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. And what I want my books to do is to be used as a tool to foster those conversations. So that's my mission for my stories, is to create conversations that I believe parents and children need to have in their households so that way our kids can not only feel prepared to deal with the world as it is, but also they can feel safe confiding in their parents about things they're feeling. And I want my books to help out with those conversations. So that's why I'm here. Now we'll hear a selection from Jeffrey's live reading. So I'm reading from my uh, anthology entry in its titled Blood for Freedom, which is a prologue to my graphic novel, which is called Yuhuru. My love, 
I can lead us to victory up here. But you are the only one who can end the war down below. The words from his love, Maria, continue to repeat in the mind of Captain Joseph Black Caesar as he made his descent down to the treasure hole of his ship, Queen Anne's Revenge. He began to cough as the faint smell of burning wood and black smoke seeped through the large red door leading into the room. Oddly, the smell reminded him of a eucalyptus tree that Maria loved so much. Snapping out of his momentary daydream, Joseph stood outside the door, preparing for the fight that would come once he opened the hatch. He reached for his flintlock and cutlass and cursed himself for forgetting that he had lost both of them to the sea once the battle started. Joseph quickly opened the door and covered his face to avoid being choked by the rush of smoke. He opened his eyes and was disheartened by what he saw. Queen Anne's treasure hole, filled with treasures desired by all men and creatures that roamed the corners of the known world, was laid in ruins by cannon shots and would now become infamous as the tomb of the traitor of Yahuru. The sounds of the incredible war raised on above. Booming cannon blasts the battle cries of pirates, the living, and the undead. Swords clashing, along with the crashing sounds of the Caribbean Sea. Wars were fought for power, the greed of rare treasures, or to show dominance over different pirate tribes. But the fight today was for something worth more than any gold to Joseph, the freedom of African people. Bloody hell, where are you, dumb bastard? The raspy shouting of Commodore Josiah Phoenix interrupted Joseph's thoughts. Commodore Phoenix's rotund frame stood in the middle of the treasure room, intensely searching through the smoke ahead of him. Phoenix's clothes had been seared by the fire that rapidly engulfed the hole. Gold coins and gold statues from the Americas scattered over the floor. Artwork from the European continent was swallowed by the flames, and groans from the wood of the ship grew louder. Joseph realized the ship was sinking and understood the end was near. Phoenix stood strong in the middle of the wreckage, searching the thick smog, with his pistol in front of him. Phoenix grimaced in pain from the gash over his right eye, a result of being cut by the man he was now looking for, Captain Emilio Grillo. You treacherous son of a bitch! Come out and face me, you coward! Phoenix barked. Nothing moved. No one responded to Phoenix's command. Grillo, Grillo, you bastard, show yourself, continued Phoenix. Another loud groan came from the ship, and Queen Anne shipped it downward, causing Joseph to stumble and fall forward on burning embers. Shit, Joseph exclaimed in anguish as he rolled off. The sound startled Phoenix, who quickly turned around and fired a shot where Joseph had once stood. The timber exploded above Joseph. Joseph was shocked that Phoenix would fire at him. As he looked up, he found himself staring at the smoking barrel of Phoenix's pistol. Quick to flee, Phoenix hissed at Joseph. We need to finish this, or is it et toot, Caesar? Joseph prepared to lunge at Phoenix when a familiar voice spoke out from the smoke behind him. Enough. Moments later, Grillo limped out from the darkness, aiming his pistol at Phoenix with his left hand, clutching his bloody abdomen with his right. Taking a closer look at Grillo, Joseph saw a wooden stake had pierced his stomach. Phoenix spun quickly and aimed his gun at Grillo as Joseph slowly stood up. 
Phoenix also noticed Grillo's injury and couldn't help but to slightly smile. I see the fates do not favor you this day. Lower your pistol, brother, gritted Phoenix. Grillo grimaced and then a smirk crept across his mouth, revealing his blood-stained teeth. Your death may be slow, or it will be quick, but it will happen there where you stand, Phoenix, Grillo answered. Time is no longer on your side, Grillo. Lower your pistol, Phoenix said as he recocked his pistol. Grillo's infamous childlike smile displayed, which visibly annoyed Phoenix. Did you forget that quick? You already fired your shot. Grillo then glanced at Joseph. Brother, I am sorry for... A loud, monstrous shriek cut between Grillo's words. The sound startled the three pirates. Suddenly, the three men found themselves suspended in the air as a powerful thud was absorbed by the ship. Joseph's body began to be battered throughout the hull. He slammed it to the fires, slammed it to the wooden walls, and seconds before he was close to passing out, his body crashed down to the floor. Joseph's head had a painful throb to it, blurring his vision. He was sure that he should have been knocked out, or maybe worse. Joseph was able to hear the crackling of the flames. When he regained his other senses, he felt dampness on his trousers. Frightened that it was blood, Joseph rubbed his pants and revealed that it was only water. Queen Anne's revenge was dropping further into the dark depths of the Caribbean. The smoke in the room became thicker due to the water extinguishing the fires. Joseph heard coughing in front of him, but it was too hard to see who it was. The captain did not see Grillo or Phoenix. Joseph stood up again and took a step forward and felt a solid object underneath his boot. He leaned over to see a pistol laying in front of him. It is fate after all, he said to himself. As soon as he grabbed the firearm, a silhouette appeared. Joseph grabbed the pistol and aimed it at the emerging figure. The silhouette slowly walked out of the smoke, revealing Grillo, who looked more battered and bloody than before. A softer smile swept across his face as he looked at Joseph. A gun click was heard behind Grillo. Shit! hissed Phoenix. The large man jumped out from the darkness and struck Grillo with the butt of his pistol, knocking the smaller man to the floor. Phoenix showed a murderous scowl as he struck Grillo two more times. Your death shall be a quick one, said Phoenix. Phoenix noticed that Joseph had Grillo's pistol. Phoenix gave an approving nod to Joseph and violently raised Grillo's body to his knees. Kill him, my brother, Phoenix shouted. Yahuru's future will thrive once the final drops of his blood have splattered on these walls. The realization of the moment hit Joseph like a monsoon. Joseph steadied his breath and slowly raised the pistol, fighting the tears that began to swell in his eyes. He aimed the gun at the chest of the traitor, but he could not bring himself to pull the trigger. The impatience in Phoenix burst out. Hurry! This boat is going under, and I won't leave it to luck for this dog to survive. We must kill this traitor now. Stop with your pussy hand and fire. Water slowly rose past the height of Joseph's boots as he closed his eyes. His memories with Phoenix and Grillo flashed through his mind. The countless treasure adventures, fun drunken brawls, and their mutual love of the sea made the tears fall from Joseph's eyes. Joseph steeled his mind 
as he blocked out Phoenix's screaming commands. Joseph opened his eyes, revealing a new steel resolve as he looked at the traitor. Joseph cocked the pistol still aimed at the traitor's chest. Grillo struggled, but Phoenix's grip was too powerful for him to shake off. To kill the truth and destroy Yahuru, or to kill the lie and allow Yahuru to live on. Time stood still, and then Joseph fired the shot. Bang! The traitor's body slumped, taking his last breath. Joseph walked forward, looked at the fallen pirate, and whispered with the tone of a broken heart, How dare you do this to me? Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Sassy Black, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2020 curator of this program is Anastasia Renee, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>